All right. Well, welcome back to another episode. We, we have a, a, an interesting topic today. I'm sure everybody listening that has been on jury duty has very fond memories of, of being on jury. Um, and another interesting thing about this guest, uh, if my mom is listening, she'll be proud of this. Um, my mom taught me growing up that there is an uh, OBU Best and an OBU West. And I went to the OBU West of Oklahoma Baptist University, and my mom went to OBU um, OBU Best, the Washita Baptist University. And my guest Katrina went to Washita Baptist University. Um, so, Katrina, why, why don't you tell the the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it's funny. I was on another uh, podcast episode where the the host. Um, was reading where I'd graduated, and he said, um, a, a graduate of Ochita Baptist University. <laughs> I, I he, he did that intro, though, um, after we had recorded it, and then he, I'm glad that he sent me the preview, because I was like, you know, and I, he was from, I think, maybe Michigan, uh-huh. you know, so anyway, he just, when I went back and listened to the podcast after the fact, he just completely eliminated the name. It's just one of those, uh, you I, I tried to spell it phonetically. It's like wash <laughs> at all. But yeah, if you're not familiar, it 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 looks like a doozy to pronounce. But yes, I did graduate from Washita with a degree in professional accounting. Um, did public accounting for a while. I've been a financial planner and advisor, more specifically a compliance officer for a local wealth management firm here in Hot Springs, Arkansas for um, the past 16 years now. Um, been married for 27 years. Been my husband is a chaplain um, and was a pastor, and for for many years before he be, began um, doing the chaplain work. Uh, we have five children, uh, two biological, three adopted. Two of the adopted ones came from foster care. The third one, more or less, kind of adopted off the streets. That's a whole nother story. But um, then more recently, like you mentioned, um, I I wrote a book, published it at the beginning of this year, and it was after last year I had had this experience where I was uh, called to serve on jury duty for a murder trial. And, you know, I won't completely give everything away, but the, the short story is I ended up with contempt of court charges. Uh, a mistrial was granted in the original murder trial. Then I had my own hearing and was um, faced with possibility of jail time. And it was five months of uh, hard, uh, just a really trying time of my life where I was kind of simultaneously juggling uh, significant heartbreaking situations with uh, a couple of my kiddos and, you know, got to the other side of it. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to write a book, kind of tell my side of the story here. Yeah. So with the, with this whole process, um, let, let's kind of start and just some basics, maybe not necessarily just with your, your individual story, but overall through your process and what you've learned, what are some of the, what are just some of the flaws of the kind of the, the jury system that we have that maybe a lot of people that maybe haven't been in a jury or haven't been involved in a tough case don't don't quite understand. 
Right. So, I mean, that's a little bit of a hard question to answer. I can tell you one of the problems I personally had with the jury system. Again, part of this is me and my personality. But what I discovered um, that as a jury member, you're very much, um, you're expected to um, sit, listen, do as you're told, ask no questions, go with group think. And that I'm very much of an analytical, want to know the whole story, the full picture. I I view the responsibility as a huge one that you are kind of tasked with the responsibility of really determining, in this case, I mean, we're talking about murder in the first degree charge. I mean, this was, um, and, you know, with a, you know, everybody knows that when you serve on a jury, you're not allowed to seek out information about the case outside of the courtroom. And you're not allowed to talk about the case, even amongst this was a four day trial. Um, And so even us as jurors, when we would be in the jury room, you're not allowed to speak about it when um, witnesses are, are, are giving testimony. You can't like, raise your hand and say, can I ask a question? (laughs) You can't, you can't do any of that. And I really struggled because it became very clear that information is very much cherry picked for the jury. And it's given to you in a very emotionally manipulative way. Um, You know, I had, you know, I've watched I'm sure everybody has at one time or another watched a TV show or a movie where there's a court scene and you see all of the theatrics that the attorneys put on. And I really, truly thought that was just made for movies. And I got in there and sat down for opening statements. And I thought, oh, my goodness, these people have a minor in theater or something, you know. And I'm like, you know, I'm in that really kind of um bothered me because I was like, I mean, I understand they're trying to hold our attention, but I'm not here to be entertained. I only want the facts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of like, I, I'm not one that can be emotionally, emotionally manipulated. I mean, maybe for some people, a, a fact or a, a piece of testimony, if it's told in a certain way, maybe they believe it more. I, I don't know, but I'm very much just give me the facts. You know, things like um, the prosecution displaying a large blown up picture of the victim's autopsy body for us to view during closing arguments. I mean, is that necessary? You see what I'm saying? Like, uh, you know, um, pulling a, a victim, the the victim, a, a family member, a daughter of the victim up to testify who had, who was estranged from her father for five years, no communication or been with him at all, um, has no ability to testify to the event or his character or anything. It's just simply uh, for us as a jury to see a family member emotionally upset. Does you see what I'm saying? It's like I I don't I don't doubt that this individual went through, regardless of whether they uh, were estranged. That's irrelevant. They uh, having their their father killed. That that's going to be traumatic, but not a credible witness only 
to play on the jury's emotions. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, yeah. So my problem is, you know, you are, if you are the judge in a case, right, you have the ability to ask questions. You have the ability to, um, so in this particular case, there was um, 17 witnesses called for the, the state prosecution. 17 witnesses that did nothing but basically say the same thing over and over again. She shot her husband. Oh, I didn't even tell you what the case was. It was a 60-year-old woman who had shot and killed her husband. So that's that's the case. Um, and, and she's being charged with first-degree murder. Um, first-degree, the statute is she had to, uh, we had to be able to say beyond a reasonable doubt that she intended to kill her husband. Um, her 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 claim was self-defense. So 17 witnesses for the state that all um, basically say she shot him, which there was never anything uh, debatable about that. None of them, though, are able to prove that she intended to. Um, well, then, so then it's the defense's turn. And there's 14 witnesses, but every time one gets up to speak, prosecution objects, judge sustains, and they're not allowed to speak. Only three of her witnesses were able to speak. So we're left as a jury, not allowed to know what those witnesses were going to testify about, why it was objected to. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like we were given instructions at the beginning that we as the jury also had the responsibility to judge the witnesses' um, credibility, their character, uh, whether it was relative or not. And we did not have that opportunity with nearly all of the defense's witnesses. So I just, I'm like, you know, if you're going to, I, I felt like we were very much treated as kind of ignorant. Like, you know, there's lots of, and obviously none of us went to law school you know, um, but if you're going to task us with this responsibility, then trust us that we're smart enough to have some common sense here. Um, you know, there's lots of hushed conversations at the bench, you know, and then if they want to hash things out even more that they ask the jury to leave. And I'm like, you know, I mean, should I not be viewed as somebody that can determine relevance versus irrelevance and be able to make a decision uh, based on the facts. You, you see what I'm saying, yeah. you know, and, and the whole, um, and, and I'm doing a whole lot of talking here. So you just interrupt me if you have a question or something. Um, but, you know, and also the, the rule about not um, being able to research the case. Those were all rules that were put into place back when really the only access to information a jury would have would be outdated newspapers. Um, you know, maybe hearsay from people in the town. You know, nowadays we literally have non-biased factual information literally at the tips of our fingertips. And it's just... You know, I, I know. So if we just skip forward is so what was my contempt of court? What was it that happened? Well, 
I, so throughout this four day trial, well, I guess, you know, the fourth day is when we deliberated and gave our verdict, you know, so three days worth of um, hearing this, this case, um, we really never learned much about either the defendant or the victim. All we really knew is that she was a 60 year old piano teacher who shot and killed her husband, supposedly out of self-defense, but anything in the realm of talking about that self-defense was not allowed. As far as the victim, we knew his name. Um, we knew his age. Uh, and we knew that he died by a gunshot and that there was allegations that he was an alcoholic and abusive. But anything in the realm of talking about possible alcoholism or abusiveness was not allowed. What What's the rationale between that not being able to be because, discussed? So, so here was the thing, of course, after the fact, I'm a researcher by nature. So after the fact, you know, I, I didn't have a, a, a problem at all not researching the case per se, because I mean, sitting there listening to people talk about it for three days, I could guarantee you, I could tell you more about the case than anything, anything I could dig up online. Um, but like I said, what I didn't know was those two, the two main people, the, the defendant and the victim. And I was like, so, and, and I'm, no, I'm not quite answering your question yet. I'll, I'll circle around to it. But I was like, you know, I just, that night before I was like, before we we're going to go in for deliberations, I was like, you know, I wonder if I just put his name into this court search engine, if anything will come up. I put his name in there, nothing came up. That was the extent of what I had done. We we um, go back that fourth day after closing arguments, go back to deliberate. Um, we ended up, after we had deliberated, I... And in the book I write, I, I'm very transparent with how um, how difficult of a process it was. Um, I I was very emotional during deliberation, and I and one thing I talk about in the book is I'm I'm not sure whether it was um, having to utter the words guilty about another human being. I mean, it just really fell heavy on me. Mm. But anyway, after we were done, you know, and I was and I'm very transparent in the book about how emotional I was and stuff. I made the offhanded comment. I said, I don't know about you guys, but it really bothered me that so many of the, def the defendants witnesses weren't allowed to speak. And I, I wish we knew more about the victim. And I, I tried to look him up and I, but I didn't find anything. And that was kind of the extent, you know, we, we ended up voting unanimously, not guilty on first degree, but guilty on second degree. Um, go out there, give our verdict and, um, uh, sentencing. I think, you know, praise Jesus. That's over three days later. Another juror goes back to the courthouse and files juror misconduct complaint against me. Hmm. Um, and, um, then the defense attorney grabbed hold of that and wanted contempt of court against me in a, in a mistrial. So that's what happened. Um, okay. So why, um, why did they not allow any of that? So then after the uh, the fact, um, I then, when we went to the mistrial hearing, as far as, you know, so they, we all got summoned back to court, you know, all the jurors, all the uh, 
defense, prosecution, witnesses, all we all have to go back to court. And we're like, oh my goodness, what's this about? <laughs> they pull us jurors in one at a time. They save me for last. So I'm like, this is about me. Get in there and this defense attorney just absolutely slanders me, lies about me, rips me up one side and down the other. I include the transcript in the book. Hmm. It was a horrific experience, but I kept hearing him say during that trial, arguing that the state fought so hard to disallow 404B evidence. So, of course, I go home and I'm like, what in the world is 404B evidence? And look it up. Well, it's evidence that um, is related to an individual's basically their character based on prior uh, acts uh, and that it can be disallowed um, in criminal cases. The whole idea behind it is, um, so, okay, maybe he, he had the history and character of being an alcoholic or abusive, but was he abusive and drunk in that particular moment? Mm -hmm. You know, my thing is um, his history absolutely is relevant because if you've got somebody who has been abused, um, there can be that moment where um, maybe they've been abused worse before than they have this time, but it just, it finally, you know, they snap. You know, um, that they don't necessarily plan out a murder, but that kind of heat of the moment kind of thing. Um, but so that now that's been changed now that and it varies from state to state. But I'm pretty sure now and this is without me doing lots of research that they can't do that in self-defense um, motives for uh, defendants. But that obviously is something recent. Um, you know, so, um, so yeah, that was, so all of those individuals obviously had something to testify about either prior incidences or his character or maybe even her character in general. Um, and they didn't allow any of it, you know, and I'm kind of like, you know, um, all of those people could have absolutely, um, been completely uncredible, um, not relevant, but, you know, I, I don't know, you know, we weren't given the opportunity to make that judgment, but yet we were tasked with the responsibilities of literally being the judge mm -hmm. in the situation. So anyway, that is a, you know, 15 minute answer to your <laughs> response there of what, uh, you know, is wrong with the, the jury system. There was a lot of nuances to my particular case that I was involved in that, yeah. uh, that made it not a cut and dry case where obviously there's some cases out there that are not going to have all these different nuances, but um, some people may hear my story and, and say, you know, well, there isn't a problem with the justice system, you know, juror number 11, she was obviously the problem. She didn't do what she was supposed to. And I'm like, I can totally take responsibility for that. But is that one action, me making an offhanded comment after we had already done deliberations, should that, is our justice system so fragile that that completely overturned the entire trial? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, even 
even when, so when they pulled us um, uh, all in to determine if I had truly um, committed misconduct, that there was misconduct, like I said, they pulled all the jurors out one at a time. And I basically asked them um, if there'd been any misconduct. There were only two jurors that had any recollection of anything ever even being said, mm. which um, certainly goes to say that I obviously was not sitting there in the jury room trying to uh, prejudice or persuade or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I just realized how much room there is within the justice system for manipulation and power plays. I'm like, I kind of went in there with this idea that it's all about truth and facts and justice. And I'm like, no, it's about how well you can manipulate rules to your advantage. <laughs> it just, it was, it left a bad taste in my mouth for sure. You know, when, when you say that too, only two have that, and you talk about manipulation, where my mind kind of immediately goes is, that if we have a high profile case um and we want to get a mistrial that two people say something like what if it's not even true um well i mean and of course i'm not going to lie on the stand i said you know i mean i i mean i i guess i mean i could have been like no i i didn't look him up i didn't say anything but i mean i wasn't going to do that i mean i I yeah i I typed his name in a court database and I, i didn't find anything and that's what i said and you know, but the thing that was so bizarre about the whole thing that, you know, I said, most people who read my story, you know, kind of walk away going, what in the world? So, like I said, it was the defense attorney that was um, the one pushing for mistrial. Well, like I said, we came back not guilty on first degree and guilty on second degree. By him fighting for a mistrial, he opened his client up to the possibility of first degree murder all over again. So it was kind of like, I, you know, I'm sitting there in that courtroom, like, and he fought harder for my contempt of court charges than he fought for his client through four days of a trial. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? Like, I don't understand. Like, is he just trying to keep his hands in our pockets to drag this out longer? You know, he was not a public defender. He was a private attorney. So it was just kind of like, you know, and, you know, of course, I ended up having to go get my own attorney and, you know, I sat down with him and, you know, he said, you know, of course, I just, the, the weight of feeling like I was the sole cause, I mean, because obviously there was no maliciousness or ill intent. Like I went in there wanting to do the best I could uh, for the both the prosecution and the defense. You see what I'm like, both the family of the victim and the the defendant. Like I, I truly, that was my desire. And then to have all of this happen and then to complicate it a little bit additional, I'll throw this in. Another issue was that I knew the judge on a personal level. And so the defense attorney then throws that out in there. And so he recuses himself and another judge steps in. And so then to be put in this position where like, oh my gosh, like 
what in the world is happening? Like, and I was sitting in um, the the first meeting with my attorney and, you know, I'm, I'm in tears and emotional and, you know, because I had written out a statement to read and the judge would not allow me to read it. And I'm like, I said, I just wanted the opportunity to apologize. Like I, like this was not my intent. And, um, you know, and he, he, he said, Katrina, he said, you're not a bad person. He said, you, you actually are a dream of a juror because it's very apparent you walked into that trial with the perspective of that defendant was innocent unless you proved her guilty. And he said, very few people are actually able to walk into a trial with that perspective. And it was apparent you did. And which is absolutely the truth and why I had a problem right from the get go, because, um, you know, not only you kind of have, like I mentioned, almost all of her witnesses not being allowed to speak, but also if people are aware of how it works, when you have a trial um, prosecution goes first with opening statements and then the defense goes and then the prosecution gets another go at it. And then the prosecution gets first go at all their witnesses and then defense second turn closing arguments, prosecution gets first go, defense gets to say something, then prosecution gets to rebuttal it all. And it seemed to bear, and then also in this case, there were four attorneys for the prosecution and only one for the defense. So the whole thing like seemed very unbalanced. Well, the, the argument for that was, well, because in our justice system, they're innocent, right? until proven guilty. So therefore we give a whole lot more um, weight, coverage, maneuverability or whatever to the prosecution because they're the ones with the burden of proof. Um, Well, the reality is that most people go in there wanting the burden to be on proving they're innocent. So anyway, you know, my my attorney, you know, he said, Katrina, do jurors uh, talk about the case, you know, amongst themselves and probably even with family members and friends outside the courtroom if it's a multiple day trial? He's like, absolutely, they do. I mean, I mean, maybe there's some that are like black and white rules. And, you know, they. he said, now, do jurors probably look stuff up about the case and the parties involved? He said, probably. Most people spend half their day on Google and why not? He, he, he says it's natural. You're going to do it. Um, he said, has things that people have found online been brought up during time in the jury room? He said, probably, you know, it, it's probably happened. He said, but has another juror come back three days later after a unanimous decision and complained about it? He said, never. In the, in the, in the yeah. history of, you know, at least our county, you know, I can't speak, you know, nationwide, but it, he said, no, he said, Katrina, you're a unicorn. He said, and then to have the testimony that was given in the hearing, um, not only, but then to also um, the judge decide on a mistrial is, he says, it, he says, we really don't even know what to do with you. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I was like, hi, my name's Katrina. My life is just kind of uh, one big train wreck after another. (laughs) 
with this fellow juror, did you have any suspicion at all that any like that did you have any bad blood or anything or was this well like, so, no so that's that's interesting that you asked that because i did have um like when we all got called back to court and stuff and you know after they put me on the hot seat and i locked eyes with her sitting out there in the courtroom and it hit me i was like it's her she she's the one that came up and so when we were deliberating, um, I, um, you know, like I said, it's, this is a woman, 60 years old, shot and killed her husband. She'd never, you know, been in trouble before. She's a piano teacher for her whole life. Um, and claiming self-defense and stuff. Um, there, when we very first started deliberating our first initial vote that we took, there was actually nine jurors that voted guilty on first degree murder when we first did our, before we really kind of then got in and started arguing about it. She was the one that was most vocal on wanting first degree murder and the most reluctant to back down off of that and go with second. And, and I, um, I disclosed a couple of our conversations and, you know, she, she very much was like, um, you know, like, you know, what about the victim's family and they deserve justice. And, you know, like, you know, like she would, you know, she talks about an incident where like she passed the defendant in the parking lot and, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, I very much viewed her as um, like just simply the title of murderer. And then when we got to sentencing, how we decided to handle sentencing was, um, so the maximum um, the maximum sentencing for the, the second degree murder. And there was also an additional charge where, um, and I, I think this, again, I think it's just state by state. If you kill somebody with a firearm, you can, it's an additional charge, which was, you know, ridiculous. Cause I'm like, so if you bludgeon them to death with a mallet, that's, you know, no extra time for that, but you shoot them with a gun, you're anyway you know, try to make sense out of politics. But so since she had shot him with a gun, there was some, an additional sentencing for that, but combined the maximum was 40 years. Um, so we decided how we would handle it is we would go around the room and we would just give the number of how, um, long we thought the sentencing should be. And I mean, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I don't know if you can imagine being in that situation, like you're getting ready to, say how long somebody ought to spend. And we're also, we're talking about a 60 year old woman, you know, like it was huge to me. Like I could, I couldn't understand how these people were like, while we were taking breaks, like talking about basketball and weather. I just, um, I obviously don't have the aptitude to be a judge <laughs> to do that day in and day out. But so we start to go around the room and as we go around the room, it's 20 years, 20 years, 20 years, 20 years. So it was obvious and very much in juries, you realize how real the whole group think is like, um, I'm not a group think person though. I don't have a problem going against the grain, but you could tell like whoever the first couple people, whatever they said, you could tell everybody else is like, I'm not going to make waves 20 years, 20 mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. Well, it got to her and she said 40 years. Um, you know, she, like I said, she was very much like they need to be hung. 
rot in prison. Um, well, I was the last person to, to throw the vote out there. So to counter off, what we were going to do is we we're going to take an average of what everybody said, and that would be our sentencing. So to counteract her 40 years, I said zero to basically just nullify that and it, keep it at 20 years. Well, when I did that, I got a really big eye roll from her, you know? Um, so anyway, so I said all that. She obviously, she and I had some differences, um, but here's the thing. I don't think that she went back up there to the courthouse to complain about me necessarily out of a vengeful type attitude. I I honestly don't think she thought all of that was going to happen. You uh, know what I mean? Like, I uh, think yeah. she just kind of wanted to, I think she probably was, and for, you know, and again, I'm, I'm jumping a little bit into politics here. Um, I think she's kind of like, uh, one of those like mask police kind of people, like um, a Karen, if you may, um, where it's like um, she didn't follow the rules and she admitted she didn't follow the rules. And by golly, we got to make, doesn't matter if um, the fact that she quote unquote broke a rule had zero, uh, you know, zero implications in anything. Everybody needs to be aware that she broke a rule, you know, like that kind of attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where your focus on the rule actually causes more collateral damage than the breakage of the rule would have, you know, and that's why I say the mass police, you know, it's, you know, and I know that's not what this episode is about, but you know, it's like, we've got to enforce this rule because, you know, it's important because it protects people and saves people. And you don't think about all the collateral damage that this quote unquote rule causes. Um, you know, I kind of equate it to, um, oh, you know, like in school zones, the speed limit's like 20 miles an hour. For obvious reasons, there could be children running around that's not paying attention. And so you should go slower. It's a rule that makes sense. But if you are so focused on not going over 20 that you're just staring at your speedometer to make sure you don't go over 20 and you hit a kid because of it, <laughs> Um, okay. So you've completely missed the point. You know what right, I mean? Right, so right. it's kind of like those, like I said, the mask police, like, well, I wasn't going over 20, so I didn't do anything wrong. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So yeah, that's, that's my crazy story. Uh, during your, your side of things, like, so you're you're in contempt of court and, and all of that. How long of a process did that take for your own justice system? Right. So um, it felt like 500 million years. <clears throat> um, it was actually only five months. But the only reason it took five months was because so um, and, and I wrote the book in kind of a diary format to where. So the, the beginning of the story is April 9th of last year, and it was actually the day of my daughter's wedding. So I was in the midst of preparing for her wedding when my phone buzzes and I uh, am summoned to jury duty on Monday. The, the wedding was on Saturday and I'm like, awesome, I've got to go to jury duty. So that's the start, start of the story is April 9th. You know, we, we uh, see nine. So it was like, and then it was like April 13th or whatever when we... Uh, when she came back and, and complained 
anyway, in the next week or something. So then we, then I guess they all had their meetings at the courthouse and decided, yep, we've got a, uh, and the defense attorney is like, yeah, I want contempt of court. I want a mistrial. We ended up having, we all got called back to court. I think it was like uh, May 12th, I believe, somewhere in there. Um, we got the letter the next week, you know, um, saying we have to go back to court. And so there was like a couple of weeks of kind of like this anxiety of like, what in the world? You know, like what, what's going on? So I had a couple of weeks there of, till we went back to court, we go back to court. Like I said, I think it was like May 12th. So it was almost a month after the trial. And then at that hearing, that's when the judge says, yep, you're in contempt of court. And she gave me a, a summons to show cause for June 27th. So that was then another six-ish weeks of, you know, where I was meeting with my attorney and really just kind of feeling like my world was falling apart. Like I completely took myself off all social media. You know, right. there was these horrible news articles that were like, don't Google my name. Like just don't <laughs> Google my name. Um, <laughs> um, I've had another podcast where they, they, um, they posted links to the articles with the podcast. I'm like, it just makes my stomach turn. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like I said, I, I'm a financial advisor, a compliance officer, no less, in a small <laughs> town. Um, you know, I mean, people talk, right? And it, yeah. when it's just a very, um, it was a very difficult time for me because I was also juggling some really heart-wrenching stuff with my kids. And so I just kind of, stepped away, I mean, didn't step away from life. And when you read the book, you'll see what I'm talking about. But as far as, you know, disengage from social media and that kind of thing. But then, so we go to court on June 27th and I'm thinking, I just want it over with. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, so we go and um, my attorney objects to the fact that the uh, prosecution, the state, did not bring any witnesses. Um, and the judge agrees and continues the case. And it all, and I, I spell it all out and include the court transcripts and stuff in the book. It all happened very, very fast. And it was like, you know, he was wanting like the, uh, the juror that complained about me. Like he wanted a chance to cross-examine her. Um, which I'm kind of like, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to have her on the hot seat as well. I said, but can we, can we say, never mind? We don't object to no witnesses. Like seriously, I just want this over, but you know, it all just happened real fast. She continued it and reset it for August 3rd. So I'm like, you know, another six weeks of, um, of just, you know, like that pit in your stomach, you know, and the whole entire time I have my attorney telling me that I could face a year in jail. And, you know, to sit in a room, you know, when you're like, I mean, a professional, um, you know, a Christian woman, you know, <laughs> a leader in the church, like a year, like it, like the oxygen left the room, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. and trying to like, finding myself trying to plan and prepare for like the worst um, was just 
it was kind of like, I kind of felt like I was in this alternate reality. Hmm. So then, you know, we, we have, you know, finally do have my, my hearing on August 3rd. So that's, um, April, May, June, July, August, that's only four months. So another month goes by and I'll just kind of leave a little bit of a cliffhanger. The reason why, um, I, I say it was five months is because I really didn't feel like I was, even though, you know, I didn't, um, had to spend any time in jail. You'll have to just read the book to find out what my quote punishment was. And you'll say, seriously, but, um, I didn't feel like it was true. Everybody was like, aren't you so glad it's over and all that? Well, there was still this supposed mistrial that for this defendant. And I didn't like anytime her case was talked about in the newspaper, my name was talked Mm. about in the newspaper. So I didn't feel Mm. like it was going to be completely over for me until it was over for her. Um, And that didn't wrap up for another month. But I'll leave a cliffhanger out there and say that there actually never was a mistrial and Mm. just let you uh, wonder what in the world happened then of uh, yet another like try to scratch your head and figure out this quote justice system. (laughs) And then Uh. if you want just another twist in the story, I'm actually have developed a pretty pretty close relationship with the defendant. We, we talk regularly. She's actually giving one of my son's piano lessons via zoom from prison. So, um, anyway, it's, you know, uh, life takes us on, on crazy journeys sometimes. Uh, Absolutely. Which, which I'm imagining a year ago, um, you know, that's your daughter's wedding. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, a year ago, I was still hadn't even had my my hearing yet, and mm-hmm. yeah, so Goodness. craziness. Uh, well, I know this was like like was said to you. You're you're kind of the unicorn. This was a very uh, specific example. That there's really not a ton of other cases like this out there, right? Um, but for somebody that's listening, or or just people that you hear in general for jury duty that generally they're, they're going to just happen and uh, not be that big of a deal. But uh, how can people be not solve this, um, but be aware and maybe be more of an advocate for a more just justice system? What, what can people do to be a, a little bit more involved? Oh, goodness. I think that you just have to kind of go in Um, If you do have jury duty, especially if it's something, you know, like a murder type case, go in with the right head on your shoulders and perspective that I was naive and not realizing there was as much manipulation and power plays that go on and just being aware of that. Um, And for goodness sake, if you're going to look something up, don't mention it. (laughs) Don't do that. Um, You know, and the thing. That was, that was frustrating for me. Like I knew that at the end of the day, if I had found anything, I knew that I, um, you know, you are forced to consider only what is presented in the trial for the case. So, and I didn't have a problem doing that. Like, and that was one of the things that made uh, the verdict and sentencing so difficult for me is because really the reality is I was even struggling with second degree murder. 
like, like my heart wanted to go with um, manslaughter or um, completely a quitter. Like that's what my heart and my emotions wanted to do. But when I addressed the facts presented in the case, I, I was forced to come to the decision of second degree murder. And so I was like, um, you know, here, I was like, okay, here, I did everything I was supposed to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I did, and, and I believe that everybody in that jury room did come to um, the verdict and sentencing based only, but, but then to say my, my statement that was kind of a, a negative introduction of evidence somehow persuaded or uh, prejudiced them with outside information was just completely absurd, you know? Um, but I guess just, um, I, you know, I realized the law is much more complex than what um, I originally kind of, I mean, we, we all know on some degree that the law is complex, but then when you really get down into it, it is so complex. And, and I know that it's that way for a reason, but then, you know, like I said, you have these individuals that take these rules that were intended to um, bring about justice, but instead take those rules to pervert justice. Um, and it, so how do you fix it? Um, you know, the sad answer is as long as we have um, prideful, arrogant, power hungry people moving the chess pieces, um, we're not going to fix it. In other words, as long as people is involved, it's going to be a broken system. But, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, what if I had family, you know, like, what if I had discovered that this guy had all kinds of domestic abuse records? You know, what if that had popped up? Um, I would have been forced to even struggle even more with the fact that that couldn't be uh, considered in my decision making. Um, and I really feel like now, and here was another thing that made it even harder, you know, whenever they pick a jury, you know, there's 12 members of a jury, but they always, um, at the very beginning have two alternates in case something happens with, um, one or two of the jury members. There's a couple other people that have heard all the evidence and so forth that can then, you know, they're there for the entire trial and all deliberations, but unless you lose a juror to, they don't actually participate in deliberations and, and voting. Um, well, in our case, two jury members had been dismissed. Probably for misconduct, maybe reported by juror number eight. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so I have a little bit of sarcasm that I can't get away from, but um, seriously, no hard feelings against juror number eight. But um, I actually tried reaching out to her to let her know I'd written a book, but no response there. I, you know, can't blame her. Um, but uh, I, I, I honestly do not try to, I don't try to paint her or anybody as a villain in the book and was really worried that I, it would come across that way. And, and I've had a lot of people say, no, it absolutely doesn't come across that way. Cause that, that wasn't my purpose, but, um, you know, you just realize that, um, yeah, that, oh yeah. So I, I kind of got lost my train of thought. So if there had been another alternate still available, 
I probably could have seen myself recusing myself saying, you know what? I don't feel like I can, that I had all the information needed to make a fair decision. And I could have stepped out and an alternate would have stepped in. I didn't have that option. The alternates had already been used up. Now I, I could have still done it, but that would have resulted in a hung jury. And, you know, I didn't want that on my shoulders. Well, obviously I had a mistrial on my shoulders instead. So, but, um, but again, I circle back to, you know, given in the, the thing that, you know, given only what was presented in the trial, second degree murder is, was, was appropriate. But then I was left really scratching my head when, um, a mistrial is found. And, you know, like I said, when we very first started voting, it was nine that were voting for guilty on first degree. And I had no doubt in my mind that if the exact same testimony and evidence were repeated a second time, that there was a high probability that she could walk away with first degree murder. And so that's why, um, you know, of course, the, the defense attorney and the defendant had no idea about what went on in the deliberation room and how poorly her case looked um, from a juror's perspective. But, um, and I, I, I just, I was like, what, what in the world is happening? You know? So. But bizarre, but uh, I'll say on the, uh, the outside looking in, obviously it's super personal to you outside looking in. If you're a, kind of a law and order or just a courtroom type of person. I imagine your book is incredible reading. Yeah, just you know, so I've, I've done story. a couple of, of fun, fun podcasts that are kind of, uh, they're, you know, focused on like criminal justice and the justice system and that kind of thing where like one of them that I did more recently, um, I'll, um, uh, I'll, I'll throw, you know, do a name plug for it's gin and justice. They, I think our episode supposed to air next week sometime, but uh, the host is an attorney, a defense attorney. And so she does have a very good working knowledge of the legal system and how jury trials work and stuff. And so um, she was a real fun one to, to talk to. And it was real, I, I'd reached out to her asking, you know, when the episode was going to air and she had let me know, um, well, and I don't, I say next week, I don't know when this episode is going to air it. That one was going to air around July 4th. And, and she said, she said, but my interview with you um, really helped me tweak my Vordire process for jury selection with my last case. And, and I, <laughs> you know, and I, I don't remember exactly what I said. I said, oh, did it, did it go somewhere along the lines of, you know, are you, are you somebody that, um, you know, can make a decision based on cherry picked information that's been delivered in a manipulative way and also viewed as as ignorant where lots of hushed conversations will happen around you um, and you're not allowed to ask questions? I said, was was it a long and she laughed. She said as close as I could get. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but so, yeah, I've had some fun um and I actually had one, uh, she was a, uh, a law professor that has had uh, her students uh, read my book, you know, as kind of the perspective from a juror. And then I had a, uh, I had a court reporter reach out to me. Um, she actually, you know, had emailed me and then asked if we could talk on the phone. So I, I called her and 
Uh, so if you read the book, you know, again, I, I don't try to villainize anybody, but I do put court transcripts in there that just speak for themselves. So the second judge that stepped in when the original judge recused, she was she's a bit of a peach, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd asked her, I said, had you, have you ever had to do court reporting for a judge like that? And she's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Like to where you want to crawl under a table. Um, just that the arrogance. Um, uh, yeah, because it was it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. Um I was like, how do you sit there and just like repeat what they say like all day long? But anyway, so that's a whole lot about that. But what I did want to just kind of plug in there, um, you know, like like you said, my story is absolutely kind of unique and, and, and a unicorn. I mean, no, I have not run into anybody else that has been through that exact situation. But like I said, I, I interweave stories with my kids in there. And I, I have a fairly large circle of foster and adoptive moms who understand that kind of parenting trauma kids and the, the hard within that. But the theme throughout the book is really just learning to rise no matter what life throws at you. Because regardless of what your story is, you're going to have, if you've lived long enough, you have walked through some absolutely devastating things, whether it's uh, the breakup of a marriage or a health crisis or having a business you've put your heart and soul into fall apart or a prodigal child or, you know, I mean, so we all walked through just absolutely horrendous things. And I, I've been so encouraged by the people who have reached out to me that have said, you know what? Um, reading your basically your diary every day of getting back up out of bed and putting one foot in the other. And then even further than that, being feeling safe to say, you know, God, I'm, I've got some questions right now. <laughs> I've got some questions and I'm kind of, I'm kind of mad. I like, no, I'm a, I'm a lot mad. Um, like being safe to say that, but then at the end of the day, day to say, you know what? Um, even if, you know, that that's what really true faith looks like is even if uh, this all falls apart, I still trust you. Um, and, you know, so I think that that's kind of really a big part of my story is, you know, what does what does real genuine faith look like? Um, and it's it's not I mean, yeah, we always want to believe and hope for the best, but the reality is that is the best doesn't always happen. And, um, you know, sometimes the miracle is just keeping your, your faith in the even if. Yeah, I, no, I, I think that's great. And, and certainly sounds like even though most people uh, listen to this, and in fact, probably none listen to this, will have your exact experience. Like you said, we, we all face something. Um, and being able to, to continue on and, and to have that faith despite hard circumstances is something that we could all learn and grow from. Absolutely. So I'm imagining people listening to this are going to want to, to buy your book and, and stay in, in contact with you. So where can they find your book at and um, stay in contact with you after the show? Sure. Well, it's, it's out there on Amazon. I've got, you know, the paperback and hardback. And then of course the, the e-version, the Kindle. Um, and then I also went out on a, a limb and did a 
audio version as well for those that, you know, and I think a lot of podcast listeners are probably audio book people. Yeah. Full disclosure, though, I uh, self narrate it and I am by no means a professional voiceover person. And it was a huge learning curve. You know, I'm sitting here looking at you with your headphones and mic. I've got those in a box like for when podcast members, uh, hosts want that to be used. But I mean, I can never get the crazy things to actually recognize the right inputs and outputs. And anyway, so huge learning curve to try to record the audiobook and get it to uh, ACX or Audible standards to, to upload. But it is out there. I, it was just important for me to record uh, it in my voice since it's my story. Um, but so it's there. I don't necessarily have a website. I'm on Facebook. I'm not hard to find if you. Uh, search Katrina Robertson and maybe even narrow it down to Arkansas, you'll find me. I, I've actually been starting to be uh, uh, asked about speaking engagement. So I'm thinking about possibly um, exploring that. And if that's the case, I'll eventually, you know, put up a website and that kind of thing, but just kind of seeing where, where it all takes me. But Amazon Juror number 11 is the name of the book. The subtitle is uh, A Memoir of the Broken Justice System and Rising from the Trials of Life. So you'll you'll find it out there. Um, and then Facebook, Katrina Robertson, you'll, you'll find me. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll definitely include that, the Amazon link down in the, in the show notes down below. So definitely give that a look. And yeah, I'll include Facebook on there too, if, if you want to stay in contact with her. But Katrina, fa fascinating story. And, and thank you so much for sharing with us today. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me here. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely. All right. And thank you to everyone listening. And we'll catch you on the next episode.